We're now coming to the last uh, day of Jesus' life on earth, the most climactic events in his whole ministry, uh, the day that he died on the cross. Um, let me just read uh, some words from John Legg, uh, who has written a very helpful commentary on Matthew. The anointing at Bethany, we looked at that last Sunday morning, and the Lord's Supper, what we're going to look at this morning, are bound together by the stress on the cross. While the Pharisees plotted and the false apostle Judas Iscariot betrayed, God was working out his purpose, fulfilling the scriptures that had been written about the Son of Man. Everything is coming together now. The hour, uh, often it says in the Gospels that Jesus' hour had not yet come. The hour had now arrived. Now, I've only got two points to mention uh, this morning. My first point is the last supper. Uh, they were uh, coming together uh, just south uh, of the temple. Uh, if you visit Jerusalem, uh, there is a room you can go to where apparently the Last Supper was celebrated. We don't know that 100%, but it was uh, within the uh, area of the city near the temple. And the Lord is in control. Uh, I haven't got time to mention what we had in our reading but it's obvious uh, from uh, the first few verses in our reading uh, that everything was planned according uh, to God's timetable. Uh, the rulers wanted to do away with Jesus after the Passover feast, but God was bringing everything together so that it would happen on the day of the Passover. And they are gathered together by God's appointment in this upper room, a very famous scene. Uh, they are seated around the table. The place of honour on Jesus' right, do you know who was sitting there in the place of honour? Judas Iscariot. Because Jesus dipped the bread in the wine and gave it first to the person in the place of honour. On the left side, of Judas was what is referred to as the beloved disciple, John, who leaned upon the Saviour's bosom. And you've got this very poignant uh, scene. Now, in uh, the US, uh, before somebody's executed, somebody on death row, apparently they're allowed to have a last meal. They, they can choose whatever they want. Uh, they're uh, able to eat a last supper. This is Jesus Christ's last supper before he's executed. But he didn't do anything wrong. He was going to die for your sin and mine. That is what is coming out here. Now then, the last supper. What, what is this last supper? Well, Jesus and his disciples were Jews. So this was the Passover meal that they were eating. And if we're going to understand uh, what's happening here uh, about 
the gospel and about the communion, which we're going to look at in a minute, we've got to understand something about the Old Testament festival of the Passover. Uh, you find it in Exodus chapter 12, and it was the most important feast in all of the Jewish calendar. Uh, it remembered uh, the exodus uh, of the children of Israel from Egypt, the uh, biggest event in the Old Testament. And Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, we are told, was yearning to eat this Passover. Every year, Jesus would have had the Passover uh, feast. But this particular year, he was yearning with a great longing because this was going to be his last supper. Now, this isn't just somebody longing uh, to have uh, a meal. Uh, I'm longing uh, to get back to a South Indian restaurant on City Road. <laughs> I haven't been there for so long. There is a longing in my heart. But this longing in Jesus' heart is something much more profound. Do you know what it's about? Jesus is the Passover. This meal, the last Passover, the last supper, is all pointing to Jesus Christ. So we're looking at the gospel in Mark. So if we want to understand the gospel, oh, this feast is so rich in pointing us uh, to Jesus and his death. Do, do you know what the Passover meal consisted of? Um, let me run through the menu. There was a lamb that was roasted. There was bread, unleavened bread. Uh, the dough uh, didn't have time to rise when they were leaving the land of uh, Egypt. So the unleavened bread, bread without dough, reminded them of their haste in leaving Egypt. The lamb, the roast lamb, reminded them of the sacrifice that saved them from Egyptian bondage. And then it had bitter herbs with it. And that was a reminder of the, uh, the slavery that they had endured. Now then, I want to put you in that room. This is what would happen in a Passover meal. We're not Jews, are we? So we need to learn about what they would do. There was the meal, the lamb, the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs. And as the centuries went by, they added another tradition to the meal. They drank four cups of wine at different intervals. You'll see why I'm mentioning this in a minute. The first cup of wine was drank before the food came. And when the food was brought in, the youngest son would ask... Why do we eat this food on this night? And then the father would recite the account of the Exodus. And then the second cup of wine would uh, be passed around just before the meal was eaten. And before they ate the meal proper, the bread would be passed around. And this bread, as it was passed around, the father would lift it up 
and would say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat the Passover meal. And the father would give thanks for the bread and the people would eat it in silence. They were remembering this great event, them being rescued from Egypt. But this night, instead of silence, Jesus suddenly said, Take, eat. This bread you're eating, this Passover bread, is my body. I am the Passover. Never happened before. And then, after the main meal was eaten, a third cup of wine was passed around. And as they were about to drink that third cup, Jesus broke protocol again and said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. That blood of the Passover lamb, it's pointing to the blood I'm about to shed on the cross. And then the fourth cup, Jesus didn't drink from because he said, verse 25, I will not drink from it until I and you, my people, are together in heaven in the marriage supper of the Lamb. So this was the last Passover, the last supper. And even the timing is significant. I know I'm giving you details here, but all of these details are pointing to Jesus's fulfillment of the Passover. Verse 17 in the evening, he came with the twelve. Why am I emphasizing that? When evening was come, for this reason. When did the Jewish day begin? The Jewish day didn't begin uh, at um, uh, midnight, when our new day begins. Uh, I'm sure they didn't have uh, the changing of the clocks <laughs> in Judaism to complicate things even further. The Jewish day began at sundown. And so, my friends, even though this was Thursday evening, because the evening had come, because the sun was down, the Friday had already begun. Can you see the significance of that? When Jesus and his disciples are celebrating the last supper, their last Passover meal, it's already the day of the Passover. And in God's perfect timing, the Passover lamb, the Passover bread, who is Jesus Christ, is about to go to that cross. In 15 hours, Jesus would be executed. His blood would be shed. It's all pointing to the cross. There's no point having another Passover meal. It's all been fulfilled. Uh, I know uh, some of you had exams over... No, you didn't have exams, did you? There were no exams this year. Imagine doing an exam and having 100%. Is that possible? Maybe in a maths exam it's possible. 100%. No more resets. That exam doesn't have to be repeated. Jesus, 100% fulfilled all that the Passover was pointing. 
I think we're going to close with a hymn. Not yet. <laughs> no blood. No altar now. The sacrifice is over. No flame. No smoke ascends on high. The lamb, the Passover lamb, is slain no more. But richer blood has flowed from nobler veins to purge the soul from guilt and cleanse the reddest stains. Do you see it? Even though it's an Old Testament feast, the Passover, it's all been fulfilled on that cross. Every detail. You can read the Old Testament prophecies. All the prophecies, down to the last minutiae, were fulfilled on the cross. What does that mean for you and for me? There's a verse in the New Testament which says, there remains no more sacrifice for the people of God. We don't have to do something. We don't have to sacrifice in order to make ourselves accepted by God. It's all been done. Are you resting on that one perfect, final sacrifice of Jesus Christ? There's a blessing in resting, isn't there? It took me months to see when I was seeking the Lord that it wasn't even an activity faith. I was trying to believe, but I couldn't muster enough faith. No, it's resting. Resting on Jesus Christ. The last supper. And then the first supper. The first supper. Jesus takes the feast of Passover, which is never going to be needed again, because he's going to fulfill it all. And he institutes a new feast, which we call the Lord's Supper. We haven't been able to celebrate the Lord's Supper this month, but we're hoping, uh, God willing, uh, next month uh, to have the Lord's Supper, even in the church. And Jesus institutes this. We don't do it because it's our tradition. This is something that the Lord has given to us, his people, And unlike the Passover, the last supper, the first supper only has two things. You all know what they are. The bread and the wine. And just as the Passover things, the items that they were eating and drinking, were pointing to Jesus Christ on the cross, there was nothing special in the lamb or in the bread or in the bitter herbs. So the bread and the wine during communion is ordinary bread. And with us, it's not wine, is it? It's some sort of root juice. But they're all symbols pointing to Jesus' death on the cross. That's what the gospel is, the cross. And if I can add uh, what we have in 1 Corinthians, those are the words I read when we have the Lord's Supper. So you've got more details than what we've got in the account here. Jesus said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Oh, what a wonderful feast. In the Passover, the people were looking forward to the one event that all history is pointing to, the death on the cross. In the communion, we're looking back 2,000 years now to what happened on Calvary. All of history 
is around that event, isn't it? The cross, bridging the gulf between a holy God and sinful mankind. The cross. Let's look now at the two things, the bread and the wine. What what is the import of the bread? The bread. Do you know what bread is? When we prayed in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. We didn't ask, give us this day our daily caviar. (laughs) Not dainties. It's staple food, bread. We can't live without bread. As I was coming in this morning, this hymn was being played. It's known as a Heath hymn because we've sung it so often and it's a good one. In him I live. Upon him cast my care. He saves from death, destruction and despair. Without Jesus, you've got no life. You've got no hope. Bread. Jesus isn't a luxury. He's essential. If you don't understand much of the gospel, as long as you can see this, I must have Jesus Christ. I cannot fully explain what he did on the cross, but this I know. I must have him or I'm lost. Can you say that? And then notice, this bread is broken. This is my body which is broken for you. What is that pointing to? Ooh, the details. It's visual. The body of Jesus Christ was a perfect body. If any man deserved not to die, it was the perfect son of God. God became a man. He never committed sin. He never even thought a bad thought. And yet, this perfect body was broken. Do you know why? He was bruised for our iniquities. He was wounded for our transgressions. The two words that are most precious in the communion, do you know what they are? The two words that, that my heart just beats, an extra beats when I hear them. For you. This is my body broken for you. You know, when Jesus stood that exam and passed 100%, it wasn't for him. He didn't need it. He was already in perfect fellowship with the Father. Jesus Christ, as a man, having lived a perfect life, he could have gone straight back to heaven. He didn't have to sits the exam of the cross. But this is the wonder of wonders. It was for you, for me, that he did that. For me. I just want to read a true account. Uh, It's from the end of the American Civil War. I'm reading from Phil Riken here. He's got excellent illustrations. And at the end of the American Civil War, 19th century, A man in farm clothes was seen kneeling at a soldier's grave in Nashville, Tennessee. A sympathetic bystander asked him, is that grave of the grave of your son? No, the farmer replied. I have seven children, all of them young, and a wife on my poor farm in Illinois. I was drafted into the Union Army, and despite the great hardship it would cause to my family, I was required to serve. 
But on the morning I was to depart, the man who now lies in this grave, my neighbor's oldest son, came over and offered to take my place in the war. When the farmer stepped away, the bystander could see the words he had written on the gravestone. They simply read, he died for me. This is the testimony of every believer in Jesus Christ. We have a saviour who offered himself in our place. Whenever we break bread at his table, we're saying, in effect, he died for me. Now, reading that story, that's not personal to me, is it? It was only personal to that poor farmer from Illinois. I'm sure he wasn't tired of visiting that grave and even weeping year after year when he went there because he was so overwhelmed by the fact that this person in his place died so that he could be free. But, oh, isn't there something personal, intensely personal, about the death of Jesus Christ on the cross? In my place, condemned, he stood. Oh, do you feel something of that? Maybe our love isn't as great as it should be, but don't you feel, even in these cold hearts of ours, a spark that says, for me, amazing love, for me, uh, Wesley couldn't get over it. Uh, in his famous hymn, And Can It Be, he says, you know, died he for me who caused his pain. And in another hymn, he says, oh, love divine. Notice how it starts. Oh, what hast thou done, O God? The immortal one hath died for me. The Father's co-eternal Son bore all my sins upon the tree. The immortal God for me hath died, my Lord, my love, is crucified. If you forget everything about this message this morning, don't forget those two words, for you, for you. It's not head knowledge, is it? It's heart knowledge. To you, believe, he's precious for me. And then what about the wine? What, what about that? The cup, Jesus said, is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out. That's what the word is in the original. It's poured out for you. A bit of Old Testament background here. Uh, this uh, was uh, Moses uh, in Exodus 24, I think. Uh, he collected the blood of the sacrifices on the altar in a basin at the bottom. Uh, it must have been a large basin because so many sacrifices were performed on the altar. And he took uh, that blood and he would sprinkle some of it on the altar. And then he would take the blood from the basin and sprinkle it upon the people. And as he did that, he would say, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. What a wonderful picture again of what Jesus did on the cross. He shed his blood. It was sacrificial blood. Jesus died on the cross as an atoning sacrifice. My, that's a big word, Pastor. What do you mean by atoning? What does atonement mean? It means at one. It means a sinner like me can be reconciled to a holy God because of the blood 
of Jesus Christ, the Passover lamb. Just as on the night of the Passover in Egypt, the blood of the lamb sprinkled on the doorposts of the houses made the angel of death pass over those houses. It turned away from the houses covered in blood. So the sinner, whoever that sinner may be, that can be you if you're sheltering in Jesus, if you are hiding under the cross then the blood of the covenants turns away the righteous anger of God. There is no more condemnation to them who are in Christ Jesus. Didn't we begin this service with the words of the new covenant? God says, I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them and they shall be my people and I will be their God. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that awesome? A holy God not even remembering your sin. It's not just that he's forgiven it. There's no more record of that sin. God doesn't even bring it up. Uh, you know, we, we are not like that, are we? with the best of intentions we try to forgive one another and then we still can't forget because we're human but God when God who cannot lie says I will remember your sins no more he means it uh, when we have weddings in the church uh, there is a safe, I shouldn't be telling you this, there is a safe <laughs> in the vestry. Uh, I won't say what the combination is, but in that safe, there is the register. So when a couple gets married, uh, they sign the register. Now, a marriage is a covenant. A covenant is like a contract. It's, it's something very... Uh, Serious to enter into covenants. And because marriage is such an important covenant, the ink that the couples use to sign that uh, contract, that register, is indelible ink, which means it's supposed to last forever. <laughs> Do you know what? Jesus Christ covenanted not with you and me he covenanted with the father that all who come to him will be saved and it's not our blood that signs the contract our obedience is nothing we, we are a failure in God's eyes even as his people it's the blood of Jesus Christ and you know what it's indelible indelible it can't be erased. As top lady put it, my name from the palm of his hands. Eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart it remains in marks of indelible grace. Can I say, isn't that wonderful? It doesn't matter what I feel. It doesn't matter what I'm like. It's not what I feel or do that can give me peace within it's all what Jesus did. His oath, his covenant, and his blood. When all around my soul gives way, do you feel like that sometimes? 
you're on quicksand. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. Very quickly, what are we going to do with Jesus Christ crucified? This is what the Last Supper, the Passover, and the First Supper, the Lord's Supper, are all pointing to. What are we going to do? Just a few closing points. We eat. We drink. Jesus in John 6 said, Unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you are not saved. He's not talking there of physical. He's talking about the spiritual, the symbols. What, what, what is it to eat Jesus Christ? Do, do you know what I do when I'm doing communion? Do you know what I'm reminding myself of when I'm taking the bread? I'm saying, Lord, this is an empty hand. When I first came to you, it was nothing in my hand. I bring simply to thy cross, I cling. Now, after being a Christian since 1990, I don't know how many years that is. Is that 30 years or so? I'm still empty-handed. Even though I'm a minister of the gospel, I've got nothing to offer you, Lord. Lord, I need you to save me. An empty hand. An empty hand taking the cup. What a lovely picture of faith. We don't need to think of faith as something we work up. Our emptiness is what faith is about. Taking of Christfulness. Doesn't that encourage you? You feel empty at the moment? Jesus is full. Full of grace. What else? Thanksgiving. Uh, verse 12, I think, after giving thanks, Eucharist is thanksgiving. In the Anglican Church, they call communion the Eucharist. What a good word to describe it. It's a thanksgiving meal. In uh, America, it's in November, they celebrate thanksgiving. But when we have communion in church, it's thanksgiving. It's not something doer. It's a meal where we're thanking God. Thank you, Jesus, for saving my soul. Thank you, Jesus, for making me whole. Uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, when he was in Sandfields, in Aberavon, Port Talbot, they were having a fellowship meeting, and he asked, what is a Christian? And an ordinary lady got up. Uh, she didn't have a degree in theology, and she said, Somebody who's thanked Jesus for dying on that cross in their place. And Lloyd-Jones said something to the effect, spot on. There you go. It's not what I have to do. He's done it. And I realize that. And I realize it's pure grace. Love. Love. And I just say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for ever remembering me. And then isn't it communion? Communion. We feed on him. Not just as individuals. It's a communal meal together. Do you know what we are here this morning? 
Uh, some people think of church people as people who think they're a cut above the rest. We are not that in Heath Church. We're the children of mercy. Children who are just like those outside the church. But the one difference is Jesus Christ having forgiven us. Children of mercy who praise him for Calvary's pain. Didn't we sing as I conclude, I greet thee. Can you do this? Talk to Jesus Christ. I greet thee. Whom I sure redeemer at. Before you greet one another after the service, you're not going to have much time to do it, but greet Jesus Christ. I greet thee. My sure redeemer, my only trust and saviour of my heart, who pain didst undergo for my poor sake, I pray thee from our hearts all cares to take. Thou art the life of which alone we live, and all our substance and our strength receive. Praise God for the last supper and the first supper, because they're all about Jesus Christ and him crucified for his namesake. We're going to sing now, No Blood I've got it right, haven't I? Yes. No blood, no altar. Uh, that's misspelt, but we all know what it means. No altar. Now, the sacrifice is over. Uh, let us stand and make melody in our hearts uh, by uh, singing uh, that hymn of praise.
Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you complete in every good work to do his will, working in you what is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. <laughs>